It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. I, I heard about our guest this week uh, way before I ever met him. Uh, I have a friend uh, that grew up in Spartanburg named Andrew Kynard. Uh, Andrew went to the Naval Academy and then he joined the Marines. And he told me about today's guest. Uh, he considered him to be a friend. And I figured any friend of Andrew's uh, could also be a friend of mine. And I wound up being right. Uh, Seth uh, Moulton and I sat on opposite sides of the house. Uh, he represents Massachusetts. I represented South Carolina. But uh, under the heading of uh, we probably judge people based on our own interactions with them, he was always fair. He was more than fair. He was actually really nice and thoughtful and curious, and I enjoyed talking to him. He graduated from Harvard. Got a dual degree, if my research is correct, um, after that in business and public policy, served in Iraq on multiple tours, and now he serves in the United States House of Representatives. Seth, I am sure I got part of your bio wrong, but you may be too much of a gentleman to correct me. How are you? That's all good, Trey. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. It's good to see you. You too. I'm going to start with the hardest question of all. Why in the world did you major in physics? <laughs> yeah, I thought I was smarter than I am. Um, physics was tough. Physics was tough. I've always loved science. And I'll tell you the best thing about having a, a physics degree. For everybody in life who sees your resume and not your transcript, you sound really smart. I'm living proof that C's get degrees, even at Harvard. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, when people say, oh, you got a Harvard physics degree, you must be brilliant. You know, that's kind of, uh, that, that's helped me out every once in a while. I think I only know three physics majors, um, probably because I, I, I mean, most of my friends just aren't that smart. So I, I think I only know three people who majored in physics. I, I remember when my son took it, he actually took the AP physics exam. Well, good for I, him. I don't, I don't even I mean when I think of physics, I think of something where there is an answer until you get so far or high up in physics, in which case there is no answer again. I once had a, a professor, one of the smartest professors I ever have, spend an hour doing a proof around the origin of the universe or what was happening at the Big Bang. That at the end of it, he said, this just proves that God exists because there's no way that these things could have happened without divine intervention. Now, this would be probably a controversial statement if there are any physicists listening to the podcast right now. But it was fascinating, and it's to your point, that physics gets to the outer reaches of our knowledge so far that we often don't have answers, even explanations for what's going on. But it is one of the things that makes it fascinating, makes it a fascinating thing to study. But you know what? When people ask me, 
how do you go from physics to Congress? Uh, I often explain, you know, look, I, I clearly wasn't smart enough to be a physicist, <laughs> so I ran for Congress. And there's a bit of truth to that, Trey. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you about this because I, I don't typically talk about uh, matters uh, related to uh, faith or uh, religious beliefs or anything. But you you mentioned you mentioned what this professor said. It, it always struck me that it would be hard to have some kind of spiritual or religious beliefs if you were a physicist or knew a lot about it beyond this like punctuated equilibrium. I did hear this theory that the little gaps can only be explained by the divine, but but now I have exhausted my knowledge of physics with punctuated <laughs> equilibrium. Look, I, I I actually found, I mean, this is purely anecdotal. I'm sure there are probably some studies on this, and I don't know what they say. But at least at Harvard, I found that some of the physics folks were the more religious because they realized there are limits to what science can explain. Whereas maybe people who are involved in other kinds of science, more uh, immature sciences like biology, um, you know, they're they they're they're more likely to be atheists. I don't know if that's true, but that that seemed to be the case for me. And and I'll tell you, as an undergrad who studied physics, uh, I spent a lot of time in the church and Harvard Yard. In fact, it was the minister of that church who became my most important mentor in life and inspired me to join the Marines. Wow. Well, um, that is fascinating. That is an entirely separate podcast altogether, which would have no time limit. So I'm going to go back to something I love to ask successful people. Uh, well, two things. Tell us what Seth Moulton was like growing up. I mean, we we know where you are now. We're going to get into how you got there. But when you go back and look at the junior high or high school Seth, do you recognize that person? <laughs> Not exactly. There are a lot of similarities, I guess. I try to be a nice person. I think I was known for being a a nice guy. Not always the most popular guy or the best athlete or the best student, but but I always try to be nice. I think that's that's really important in life. I learned that from my parents. Um as someone who I think values friendships, maybe even more today than I than I did back then. I'm someone who's interested in a lot of different things. So, you know, I I rode on a crew team at, in uh, in high school, and I worked on a railroad shoveling coal. I always had blue collar summer jobs, but I went to some of the nicest schools in the country. So there's a little bit of you know inherent contradiction that I I think is. I, I think it's more interesting to live a life like that and not try to fit into some some stereotype. But I remember when I was first thinking about running for Congress, I was kind of recruited by this nonprofit trying to get veterans to run for office. And it wasn't something that I had planned on doing. In fact, when I graduated from from grad school after the Marines, I took my first job in Dallas, Texas. I mean, I assume most of your listeners know a little bit about politics you don't move to Dallas, Texas, if you're planning to run for Congress in Massachusetts. That ain't a wise move. <laughs> so this was not what I was planning to do with my life. And I was thinking about it. So I asked some of my old friends and mentors for advice. And I remember one of my oldest friends, actually the father 
of some kids that I grew up with. And he said, you know, look, Seth, you're really talented guy. I think you, 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 you know, you'd be great in an appointed position, but you're never going to get elected. No one's ever going to vote for you. <laughs> so I think I, I changed a bit um, in college, but especially, you know, the Marines. I mean, the Marines were a huge influence on my life and I wouldn't be where I am today without that experience. I, I fundamentally ran for Congress because I felt like I'd seen the consequences of failed Washington leadership when I was in Iraq. And I served with some of the most amazing Americans I've ever met in my life. And I learned a lot from them. And I think I still want to help them. As a, as a corporal said to me once, you know, sir, you ought to run for Congress someday so that this stuff doesn't happen again. Now, now he used a Marine term for stuff, but I'm not sure that's allowed on your podcast. So <laughs> I'll keep it at that. But the point is that it's these different experiences in my life that have kind of helped me grow and change along the way to get, to get where I am. But there was no life plan, let me tell you. I had no idea when I was growing up that I would ever be involved in politics period, let alone serve in Congress. We're going to take a quick break. More of my interview with Congressman Seth Moulton next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before I let you out of the time travel machine, I, I... I just wrote a book on decisions. I'm fascinated with how we make decisions, how we balance regret with remembrance, what we learn from them. If you could go back in time, would you pick the same major? Would you pick physics? Would you pick something else? And then I want to get into some decisions you made after that. I would pick physics because I learned a lot about how to think about tough problems. It made me a better thinker, not just better at understanding physics. But there were a lot of crazy esoteric math courses I took in college that have had next to no value for me in life. And I wish I could go back and replace them all with language courses so that I could speak another language or two. Oh, so God. that's something I do very differently. God bless you for saying that, Seth. You are talking to someone who graduated college without taking a single math class, or else I would still be <laughs> in college. So God bless you for validating what what is continues to be a nightmare for my parents, that they have a child who did not take a math class. All right. <laughs> You have already touched upon your service to our country. What motivated you to sign up for the Marines? So it was this this minister in college who talked a lot to us about the importance of service, about how you can't just believe in service or support others who serve. You've got to find a way yourself to give back. And so as I was approaching graduation, I looked at a lot of different options. I looked at Peace Corps, teaching overseas. But at the end of the day, I just had so much respect for these 18-year-old kids who serve on the front lines of our nation's military that I decided that that's where I would do my part. Now, I made this decision 
around graduation, which for me was three months before September 11th. So a lot of my friends and classmates thought I was nuts. I mean, this was just not something you did, you know, I mean, one of my, one of my friends, one of my closest friends just got furious with me, um, slammed his cafeteria tray down at breakfast and walked out of the room when I told him I was joining the Marines because he said, it's just a waste, waste of your life. And, and then September 11th happened and there were lines outside of recruiting stations. And, you know, one of the guys who got in those lines was, was my friend. He ended up joining the army. So September 11th changed this for a lot of America. But I think when I look back on it, I'm, I'm proud that I made the decision to serve even before the war. What was the conversation like with your folks when, I mean, so here you are, highly educated, uh, one of the more coveted degrees you can possibly have, and you're telling them, you're not going to go to business school, you're not going to go to law school, you're not going to go to medical school, you're going to go sign up for the Marines. Well, Trey, let me explain it this way. In the run-up to the Iraq War, when there was a lot of patriotic fervor, one of the local newspapers or something interviewed my mom and they said, aren't you proud of Seth? Aren't you proud of Seth for going off to serve his country? And my mother said, and I quote, I would only have been more disappointed in Seth if he had chosen a life of crime. Now, my mom has a way with words. (laughs) (laughs) That that helps me understand the reaction that even I got that. Wow. She, she has a she has a way with words. And, you know, the funny thing, though, is when I tell that story, there are always a lot of mothers out there who smile and nod their heads and say, you know what? Maybe, maybe I don't feel as strongly uh, about military service as your mom did. But no, I mean, look, for centuries, for thousands of years, literally millennia, mothers have not wanted to send their sons or sons and daughters off to war. So, so, so I understand that, but you know, I think more to the point, my mom and dad grew up in the Vietnam war era and they were on the protest side of the war and the country was very divided. I think some of the divides we experience in politics today really emanated from that original divide over over Vietnam. And and they just couldn't understand why I would want to go serve in the military of all the things I could do. And, 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 they, and they, by the way, become incredibly proud of my service since then. You know, I think we've all grown, learned a bit as a family through this, but, but it was tough. It was really hard on them. And they did feel like I had all this opportunity and all this potential. And I was about to about to throw it away. In your partial defense, uh, it, it it turned out pretty good. In your partial defense, you, you wound up being a part of a really, really small group of people who've ever been in the House of Representatives. But before I get to your service in in politics and government. What did you learn about war, your country, and yourself while you were serving? I mean, that answer would probably take a couple hours. I'll, I'll try to give you a couple of examples, if not a complete and definitive answer. But, but, but let me go back first to what you just said about how it all worked out all right. I mean, look, a lot of the guys I served with didn't come back. 
or didn't come back in one piece like our friend Andrew. I mean, Andrew is a true American hero. He lost both his legs serving in the Marines in Iraq. And I mean, his resilience every single day is inspiring to me and probably to you and a hell of a lot of other people. I mean, I mean, he is a truly amazing American, but he won as lucky as I was. You know, I came back barely banged up physically and a little banged up mentally, something I've talked about in discussing post-traumatic stress. But yeah, I'm in great shape now. Got a wife, two beautiful girls, wonderful opportunity to serve the country again in, in Congress. And it's just important to acknowledge that it doesn't always go that way. And um, and I think about a lot of those Marines, including Andrew. I think about them a lot. But look, what did I learn? I mean, my gosh. That old phrase about how freedom has special meaning for for people who've had to fight for it or people who have witnessed those who don't have it. That's something I learned. I mean, when you see what the Iraqi or the Afghan or, or whoever you are, Syrian people go through and the lives that they lead, and yet the common human values that we share, including a yearning for freedom, that that's a powerful experience. And you realize that that that's a that's a universal human value. So I, I look, I'm you might call me a China hawk when it comes to foreign policy. I got a lot of problems with Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. But that doesn't mean I don't believe the the Chinese people don't believe in freedom. Don't fundamentally want to have a government where their voice matters and is is heard. So I think that's something I, I certainly learned from from the experience. Another thing I learned from war is that war is just god awful. It's really terrible. And there's a reason why statistically veterans in Congress are much more reluctant to go to war because because we actually know what it's like. And we've got to be a lot more careful about making those those decisions, fundamentally the most important decision that Congress should ever make. And that is whether or not to send young Americans to fight and die for us. And then what did I learn about myself? Well, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about my weaknesses. I learned a lot about the things that I can't do as well as, as others. I learned about what it really means to be a part of a, a team, a team that believes in one another. And fundamentally, I learned what it means to come together as Americans, because I served with Marines from all over this country, from the depths of Alabama, from the South Shore of Massachusetts, from intercity Los Angeles and New York to a gated community outside of Park City, Utah. We had different backgrounds, different beliefs, different politics, different religions. But at the end of the day, we set all of that aside to do what's right for America. That was a powerful experience. It's, it's something I miss in Washington today. I think that's what Americans should expect us as members of Congress to do. But 
but we don't always do it. Don't often do it. It seems to me. So I miss that. And I often say, you know, it's an honor to be a member of Congress. It's a tremendous honor, but it's the second best job that I've ever had. You mentioned two things that are worthy of following up on. Um, I don't know why I developed an interest in Spartan culture. They, they got a lot of things wrong, but I'm still fascinated by the Spartan culture. How do you think the way this country views war would be different if the leaders actually had to go fight it? Or if they simply had to send their sons and daughters to go fight it. That too. Because it's been a long time since someone sitting in the Oval Office had a son or daughter actively serving. Now, President Biden, his son served. Yes. But I think it was I think it was President Roosevelt, the last president who actually had a son serving in a war. Is that right? You're a better historian than I am. Uh, I, I, I know that Bo Biden served. And I, yeah. if I had to go back beyond that, I don't know. It, well, it wouldn't have been President Clinton or President Bush or President Kennedy. Reagan, Carter, Nixon. Yeah. I think I think it was World War Two with Roosevelt, who he had a son that was actually, you know, serving as the war was going on. and He was commander in chief. But the point is, it's a pretty rare experience. And and frankly, if you look around Congress, there aren't many people. There are a few, but there aren't many who have sons or daughters serving. And what would be different? I think we'd be a lot more careful about going to war. I really do. I think we'd understand the costs, the human costs. And I also think we'd be a lot more serious about paying for it. You know, we used to have this tradition in America going back to our very founding where we expected everybody in the country to bear some of the burden, some of the cost of going to war. One of the fundamental ways this was exercised is we simply raised taxes to pay for the war. And then everybody realized, okay, we're we're contributing here and and this isn't easy. We're paying a cost. Uh, but that changed with our current wars, and um, and it really hasn't gone back to that. So we just keep running up deficits, and not only to pay for the war itself, but to pay for the aftermath. Because every time we send thousands of Americans to war, we're racking up billions of dollars in VA costs and everything else for when they come home. You mentioned the the bond that you felt with your fellow soldiers, regardless of where they were from. And I assume sorry, Trey, fellow Marines. I fellow have to Marines, correct you on that one. Fellow Marines, <laughs> fellow Marines. Point taken. And I'm assuming not only was that irrespective of where they were from, but also irrespective of their political orthodoxy. Uh, to the extent you ever talked about it, if someone from Alabama. Bama or Utah had a different political orthodoxy. That was second. That was subsumed by the bond that you felt as a fellow Marine. I cannot tell you, I cannot emphasize enough how little it mattered. I mean, it truly did not matter at all. It did not matter at all. And I worry that even today, you know, not even two decades later, that that's not necessarily the case anymore. I've, I've heard some stories from friends who are still serving, that politics seems to get involved in the military more than it used to. But I'll give you a good example. So so 
I was serving during the 2004 presidential election. And we were in the midst of the Iraq war, a very dangerous part of the Iraq war. Some some guys felt, uh, you know, we should. I said, and by the way, I say guys because I was an infantry unit, so it was it was all men at the time. But um, the I'm sure to, to women serving as well. But in any event, some of the guys said, you know, look, I'm not even going to vote. I'm going to serve the commander in chief, whoever it is. So I'm not going to get involved. And I, I felt differently. I felt, look, you're going to suffer the consequences of this election more than anyone else because you're the ones who might actually lose your lives if the commander in chief doesn't make the right decisions. So, so I think you should vote. But I thought it was also incredibly important that I not, as their commander, as their leader, I not betray my politics, my personal politics. I didn't want my politics to get into it. So I would encourage them to talk about the election and think about who they wanted to vote for. And I would often sort of play referee in some of the debates and just correct factual mistakes. But the day before the election, my first squad leader, one of the most senior men in the platoon, asked me, who are you voting for? So I think I actually did a good job of keeping my politics hidden. There was one day when I overheard a corporal saying, well, I'm going to vote for George W. Bush because John Kerry's not a veteran. And I think we should have a veteran serving. And of course, John Kerry is a veteran. In fact, I mean, if there was a ranking of veterans, he did a hell of a lot more than George W. Bush serving in the Air National Guard. So I just corrected them on that fact. And and he just, you know, and I said, oh, well, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, sir. I didn't realize that that John Kerry had served in the Navy, earned a Silver Star and, and all that. But I hear stories today from a guy serving that, you know, the misinformation, the disinformation on the Internet is so rampant, so bad that it's hard to even just kind of agree on those simple, basic facts. And everyone kind of lives in their own social media world where they believe whatever they're seeing on Facebook. And it, it must be harder today to have that kind of simple, basic discussion about just the facts of an election, for example, uh, the biographies of the candidates, uh, rather than going deep into a political spiral. Yeah, Seth, we'll have to save this for uh, whenever you or I have a couple of years. But uh, your, your background um, in the Marines, uh, my background was in a courtroom. If you want to find out the truth, you have to use that tool we have that is most likely to elucidate the truth, which is cross-examination. And there is none of that. Um, in social media, it is validation. It is ratification. I mean, how in the world someone benefits from mis or disinformation is beyond me. So there's this tension between freedom. You know, people always remind me of the First Amendment. I just I don't see the value of mis or disinformation, and I don't see a lot of cross examination going on, really anywhere. Now look. You were smart enough not to go to law school, but I've also seen you in committee hearings. You also value the power of cross-examining what someone is saying. That's right. My, my, my dad was a lawyer, and he said I could do anything in life except go to law school. I think he, he didn't think of the Marines when he said that, but he forgot and he left that out. But look, you're right. I mean, you're so right. And, and that's what we're supposed to do in committee, right? 
that's the value of having hearings and having them before the American public. So not so that we can get a great clip to put on Twitter, which seems to be the goal of hearings today, is to actually learn something, to actually come to some consensus about what the right policy should be by talking to experts. And, you know, we we unfortunately are a long way away from that right now. And it's a problem. I mean, it affects everybody because Congress just isn't doing as good a job coming up with the right policy for the American people. And we're never going to agree on every detail, but that's the point. You agree as, you know, I think it was Senator Moynihan said, everyone's entitled to his own opinion, <laughs> but not his own set of facts. <laughs> he has been quoted so often, usually without attribution, because uh, that's the world we live in. But I think you're right. Daniel Patrick Moynihan is the first one to say you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. All right. Speaking of facts, I think I have this right, but I want you to cross-examine me if I don't. You thought about going into politics in 2012 and and opted not to, but then you did in 2014. So why did you opt out and then opt in? So, you know, back to that story, I was I was working in Dallas, had a great job and was approached by this amazing woman, Emily Cherniak, who runs this incredible organization. She was just founding back then called New Politics, which is trying to get national service veterans to run for office with the theory that those of us who have served the country before might bring some of that public service ethic, that sense of servant leadership to a place that desperately needs it, namely Washington, D.C. So so she approached me and said, you know, uh, would you think about running for Congress? And I, I said no about five times before before I started taking it seriously. But I looked at the race up here in Massachusetts in 2012, but it was so late in the cycle. I just think I just thought there was no way, even if I wanted to, there was no way I could get together a campaign. But but I said, look, I, I will take this seriously because I thought back to what that corporal had said to me after a tough day in Iraq about how if we don't have more veterans running for Congress, this kind of crap is going to keep happening. I thought about him a lot. I thought about I thought about the incumbent that I would run against in my own party who, you know, he, he passed one bill in 18 years. And I said, look, he might be a good guy, but I think we can do better than that. And, and ultimately I decided to, to jump in in 2014, running against a nine term incumbent. Obviously I knew very little about politics. People thought I was nuts. And not only that Trey, but I was running to the center, you know, people primary, folks all the time now by running to the extreme left or the extreme right. But I was actually saying this guy's too partisan. That's why he hasn't gotten anything done. And we need to be able to work better with the other side. So that's what I did. And um, I mean, it was a tough race. I think it was seven months in that we took our first poll and I was only down 53 points. <laughs> that ain't good. <laughs> that ain't it. <laughs> oh, Seth. my pollster told me it was statistically impossible to win this race. <laughs> but uh, I am but laughing I am. with you, not at you. I, I also ran against the incumbent in the primary. Uh, That's right. And it is the loneliest, most miserable feeling in the world. Oh, everybody my hates heavens. it. 
Uh, the other party hates you. The uh, I mean, Kevin McCarthy told me, you know, we would have gotten that seat if you hadn't, you know, won that primary. They were within one point in 2012. The Democrat, the incumbent, won by one point, and uh, and they were all guns a blazing for 20, 2014. But yeah, so the other party hates you, of course. Everyone in your own party hates you. I mean, all the big names in, in Massachusetts politics were campaigning against me. Um, in fact, you know, to the president's credit, uh, when just about every Democrat in the country hated my guts, there was only one member of Congress who would even take a meeting with me just to introduce myself. But Joe Biden was the first Democrat to come up after I won that primary and immediately hold a rally for me and say, look, we're proud of you and um, want you to win. I don't know what y'all do on the Dem side in the Dem conference, but when you go up for orientation, they introduce you to the entire conference and they kind of say where you're from. If you're a new member, do they do y'all do that on your side, too? Yeah, more or less. I think it was pretty hard to find someone who was willing to introduce me. <laughs> I, I just remember there being no I would get more applause if you introduced me on death row. <laughs> where, I, where I had put a couple of people that I got in the Republican conference. I mean, Ronnie, you ran against an entrenched incumbent in the primary, which is just so hard. And then you actually disproved something I tell my college class, which is the only way to win a primary is to run either to the right or to the left of the incumbent which I think is largely true, but you didn't do that. You won a primary running closer to the center. I mean, has anybody else ever done that? I mean, I, 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 not that I've heard of, but, but this is just who I am. And I think a big part of why I won that primary is because people thought I was being authentic. Like, okay, this is, this is who Seth really is. And I'm just not a very partisan guy. I mean, I'm one of the most bipartisan members of the House of Representatives just by by the numbers. And I believe that we've got to bring this country together and the way we get things done, you know, like this great bill I passed with Chris Stewart from Utah, an Air Force vet, conservative guy. But he and I worked together on some critical mental health legislation to establish this new 988 National Mental Health Hotline that's already saving thousands of lives. And that was a hard bill to get done. And the only way we could get it through is by by working on it in a in a bipartisan way. So, you know, that's just that's just who I am. But it is an unusual way to win a primary. But I want to make one other point. You know, when I was first running and I would go around to these uh, Democratic events and, you know, meet other people in the party you know, I'd, I'd meet with these Democratic town and city committees. I'm sure you have them on the Republican side, too. And and uh, and I figured, you know, if I could just peel off a few, that would be great. Well, there are 39 of them in my district and exactly zero supported me in the, in the <laughs> primary. So it was a total fool's errand. But as I was going around, you know, I mean, people would get in my face and they'd say, who the hell do you think you are, you know, running against a Democrat? You know, who who, who are you? to want to run for Congress. Oh, you're a, you're a nice young man. Why don't you go run for the school committee or something like that? And, um, and if you think about it, what they were saying to me as a recently returned Iraq war vet was Seth, do not participate 
in the democracy you just risked your life to defend. And that is wrong. More of my conversation with Congressman Seth Moulton coming up. You mentioned uh, Chris Stewart, uh, Utah Republican, serves on the House Intel Committee, um, a veteran, a prolific author, by the way, also, which I'm not sure how many <laughs> folks know, uh, written a number of best-selling books. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, you, you guys are both way ahead of me. I haven't read a, written a single book yet. Seth, you've written more <laughs> books than I've read, uh, and you could. It's just I don't know how much of a market there is for the string theory or quantum physics, but you you, you could. I, I'm not, I ain't writing about that. I need to I need to understand it better. But you mentioned Chris. Is is there? I mean, I'll dovetail two questions in, so you can get back to your life and your two children. Is there still a market for reaching across the aisle? And how, if at all, has politics changed, even in the relatively short period of time that you've been there? So yes, there is still a market because that is how we get things done, and. I mean, this, you know, this 988 bill is one of the most significant, popular things that I've done in my time in Congress. And people recognize that it's that's meaningful. And Chris and I have been on Fox News a bunch together, just talking about this legislation and then using that as a as a stepping stone to talk about other things that that a lot of times people don't even want to talk about together with someone from the other side of the aisle. So bipartisanship isn't dead but it's definitely not popular right now and i think that's that's just not good for our country we can have a lot of disagreements you and i can have plenty of disagreements but you know i actually use you as an example a lot trey i gotta tell you Uh um Uh because because sometimes i get this question like can you even talk to anyone across the aisle i mean like what is it like down there and I very often use you as an example because everyone knows you're a strong conservative Republican. Uh, everyone on the Democratic side of the aisle knows that they disagree with you on a lot of things. But I tell them there is no one who taught me more about running my office on Capitol Hill than Trey Gowdy. And he genuinely cared. He took me under his wing. He spent a lot of time teaching me, mentoring me. And I can show you, I mean, you walk in my office today and there are things that we do, practices that we follow that come directly from you. I'm dead serious. So it's, you know, bipartisanship isn't dead, but um, but it's becoming more of a rarity. And I, and I think that's the thing that's changed. I mean, even so I, I started in 2015 and of course, Obama was still president. And uh, I mean, look, this is when Mitch McConnell said that his job wasn't to serve the American people or pass great legislation. It was just to undo everything Obama's doing. I mean, I think that's terrible, wrong, partisan. I don't care who the president is. You know, we should be, I mean, at least say we'll take what we like and we'll dis- we'll disagree with the rest. But he just said anything he does will undo. That's wrong, too. But because of that climate, I think a lot of people felt like, well, you know, this is just a particularly divisive time. And I remember several old guys coming up to me, you know, generally old white men. That's that's a lot of them in Congress. And uh, and they put my their hand on my shoulder and say, you know, Seth, I know you just run a contentious race, but we really are glad you're here. And don't worry, it's never been this bad, so I'm sure it will get better. <laughs> and, and we laugh because it's only gotten worse. But it's sad that it's gotten worse because that's just at the end of the day, that's just not good for the people that we're there to serve. Yeah, I couldn't do it, Seth. 
Um, I just, I do not hate people that I disagree with. And there is more civility in a capital murder trial than there is sometimes, particularly among leadership. I think the rank and file, like I was part of the rank and file. I assume you describe yourself that way too. Mm-hmm. We actually got along quite well. It's just That's right. winning is the only thing that matters. And I, I just, I don't, you mentioned fame. Fame to me is a byproduct of virtue. It is not a virtue. Fame is not a virtue. But it seems no, like in politics, it has become one. It is. I mean, some of the most, quote unquote, famous members of Congress, and you can measure that by how often their mugs are on TV or how many Twitter followers they have or whatever else. They've never passed any bills. You know, they, they've never passed a mental health bill that's saving thousands of lives. They, they don't do meaningful work on the, the armed services committee uh, where I sit and work on bipartisan problems all the time to better serve our troops you know no they're just they're just really loud on tv but they get a lot of attention for that they get a lot of fame all right i'm gonna let, i'm gonna ask you two questions and i'm gonna let you go well let me ask let me change that because i i want to you're a father twice now how has fatherhood changed you other than sleep deprivation and you're poorer <laughs> than you that. were <laughs> Uh, what, what, what have you learned having children that nothing else could have taught you? That I'm much more invested in the long term. that I think about decisions I make in Congress, not just in terms of what they'll mean in the next two years, like when I get reelected or the next four years on, in an administration or maybe the next 10 or 20 years when there might they might really affect my life. I, I think about them like what what effect will this have 70, 80 years from now when my daughters are still alive? I'm long gone, but my daughters are still alive. What kind of country are we leaving them? That's a big change, I think, that, that just really affects my work every day. I'm assuming if your daughter's in Massachusetts, it gets harder and harder to go back to work. Um, unless they're in D.C. with you, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the drive to the airport is harder than it was before you became a dad. A lot harder. And even for my my youngest, you know, Caroline's not even two yet. So she's just happy to see me and doesn't really remember exactly the last time I left. <laughs> but Emmy just turned four. And she knows and she keeps score. We're, we're very lucky to have FaceTime now. Right. which we didn't have a few years ago and that helps but obviously it's no replacement for for being here in person so it is it's a tough job and if you do it well like i i take my seat on the on the house armed services committee with the utmost seriousness and that means that to do my job well i've got to travel overseas too and you can only do that when you're not in washington so sometimes on the the weeks when we might be working out of the office back here in Massachusetts. Instead, I'm, you know, I was in Taiwan and the Philippines and in Guam in early October for 10 days. So um, being on the other side of the world, that's not easy on the kids either. Or on my wife. I mean, look, you know, my wife, Liz, holds down the fort and she works a full-time job. She works a full-time job, but still is here at home with the kids every night that I'm away. All right. Well, I'm not going to have your wife or daughters be upset with me for taking their dad away. Two quick, fun questions, I hope, for you. Fun may not be the right word, but not political in nature. A book 
that you've read that changed your life or, or a book that you wish everyone would read? You know, look, you, you, you spend more time talking about my physics degree than just about any other interviewer I've ever been, been with. So you can imagine, I like to read history books and nonfiction stuff like that. But one of the best novels that I've read, at least in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years is called all the light we cannot see. Oh yeah. It also has one of the most magical titles in the world. Amazing. So I'd recommend that. Amazing. Have you read it? Oh yeah. Amazing book. Amazing. And it will change your life. Yes. And, and sorry, what was the other question, Trey? The other question I want to ask you is we just celebrated veterans day. What is the best thing that someone who has not served can say to someone, I mean, we say happy veterans day. We say, thank you for your service. Is that enough? Or, I mean, you're on the receiving end of that. You've earned that. For those of us who have not earned it, what's the most meaningful thing we can say to a veteran on Veterans Day? I think it's actually about listening. I think it's about genuinely being interested in in our experience. So I started a new tradition a few years ago on, on Veterans Day where instead of just doing a parade or something like that, uh, we do something called Veterans Day town halls. And I started the first one in my hometown. They've now spread across the country. A lot of our colleagues are hosting them in cities and towns all over America now. But they're a forum where veterans can come together with non-veterans, with the community that they risk their lives to serve and protect, and and just share a little bit about their experience. We, we keep it to six minutes a person but six minutes to share a little bit about your experience and how it's affected your life back home. And that is as powerful for the non-veterans who come as for the veterans who are there. Because we're fortunate, this is not Vietnam anymore. We're fortunate to live in a time where the vast majority of Americans really respect those who serve, even if they disagree with the wars. But so few serve that Many Americans just don't understand what it means to be a veteran or don't understand how we can help veterans when they come home. Don't understand the amazing service that many veterans will still offer offer their country back home in their own communities if they just get that chance. So, So my request to people who are listening is next Veterans Day, Find a veterans town hall near where you live and go and just spend an hour listening. I think you'll find it worthwhile. That is a fantastic idea, Seth, and a fantastic way for me to thank you on behalf of everyone who is going to listen to this podcast for, um, you know, for your service in every way that has manifested itself. But uh, the most unifying uh, thing I think we have left in our country probably today um, is the unity and saying thank you to people that serve and sacrifice. So, and, and it is, you're right. We're going to, we're going to end, but we're going to dedicate this to our friend, Andrew Kiner, who uh, the, the word sacrifice has a different meaning that does not in any way. Look, the, the, the mental manifestations of war are every bit as real. We just can't see them um, as easily sometimes as we can, someone like Andrew, but I cannot thank you. You were so much fun to serve with. I can't thank you enough for 
coming on uh, what some people consider to be the enemies podcast, but uh, <laughs> no, you are, you're a friend here. You've never I, been, an I've enemy never thought that that's the point though. I've never thought of you as the enemy track and I am not your enemy no. in any way, shape no. or form. I am your friend and I am grateful for your service in every way it's manifested. So no, thank, thanks very much for having me on. And, you know, to the dedication you just gave, I, I hope more of your listeners get to meet Andrew and sometime, someplace in their lives, because I tell you what, you meet Andrew Kynard, you will be inspired. Yeah, you will. And uh, look, he, uh, he wound up going to that little school. I can't remember how – is it Havard? Havard? He went to some little school and got a law degree. I wanted him to run for Congress, and then I realized, look, anybody smart enough to go to Harvard smart enough not to run for the House. So he, he hadn't done it yet. But this but. guy, yeah. Seth Moulton, thank you. Congratulations on everything you have done in life and especially on your two daughters and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Trey. Take care. Take care. And thank you all for listening. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.